Jesus the great high priest. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us firmly hold to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray, since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he has to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes upon himself this honour, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. In the same way, Christ did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest. But God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Brilliant. Let's pray for Katie. Katie, do you want to come and join me? Father, we ask uh, that you would enable Katie to share your word clearly, that you would bless her, and pray that your spirit would be at work in this room now. Pray that you would help her right now just to be, to be your vessel, to be used by you. We pray this and ask this for your glory and honor in Jesus' name. Thank you. Good morning. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been taking a break from our sermon series in the book of 1 Samuel, and we've been spending some time in Hebrews, and this is the last in our little mini-series in Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles, do have them open. We're looking at Hebrews 4, 4. So the first thing I want to point out in this passage, in this passage is that it begins with two instructions, two kind of imperative sentences, beginning with the words, let us. So you'll see it's got, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, that's in verse 14, and then let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence, that's in verse 16. And the one I want to focus on is the second one, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. And hopefully as we kind of unpack that one um, kind of instruction, that one sentence, we'll find that the rest of the passage kind of feeds into our understanding of that instruction. So to begin with, let's just look at these words. God's throne of grace. Um, if I was to say to you, close your eyes for a minute and imagine the throne of grace, I wonder what sort of images would come into your mind. Um, for me, I tried this little experiment as I was beginning to look at this passage. And um, I think it's probably an image that I had from childhood, this kind of image of this really kind of giant, white, kind of almost hallway. And then right on the other end is this kind of giant, blazing white throne. And I'm kind of the other end of the hallway, really small, kind of approaching the throne of grace with a bit of trepidation and a little bit of fear. Because the idea of kind of kings and, and queens and thrones it's kind of that feeling of being an unattainable place, a kind of far away place that I can't approach. And in some ways, the passage beforehand, if we look at verse 13, does kind of set us up to feel a bit like that about this throne of grace. It says, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. It's kind of scary, isn't it? Do you feel a bit nervous now? Um, it makes me feel kind of vulnerable as I think about approaching this throne of grace. And yet, this passage says, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence. Like, how can that be? Well, of course, the throne of grace isn't a what, but it's a who. The throne of grace is an image for Jesus. And so within that sort of little phrase, the throne of grace, we have two things that represent Jesus. We've got the throne, which is about kingship, and we've got grace, which is about the cross. So now, if I was to say, imagine the throne of grace, what I want you to imagine is Jesus, yes, with a crown above his, on his head, ruling above everything, the king of all kings, and Jesus the giver of grace, the one with the scars of the cross in his hands. And of course we know when we, when we approach God, we come through the cross, we enter through the cross. Jesus said, no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the way. And then there's another kind of clue to our understanding of the throne of grace. At the end of our passage, it says in chapter five, verse eight, that Jesus is our great high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, if we were kind of first century Jews, this phrase in the order of Melchizedek would be immediately powerful and symbolic, but we have to work a bit harder, don't we? Um, and there's lots of layers and kind of meanings to this, but the, the one I wanna focus on for the sake of this passage is that Melchizedek was both a priest and a king. He was the king of Salem, which later became Jerusalem, and his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. So right there in this kind of image, the, the, um, in the order of Melchizedek, we've got the king who, who is right, offers righteousness, justice and mercy, but also the great high priest, the one who offers grace, who makes a way back to God, who offers sacrifices on behalf of the people to make, make the way back to God. So that's the first part of our sentence. Let us approach the throne of grace with confidence. And the next part of our sentence, which ties perfectly in with this, of course, is a so that. 
so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So it's not just let's approach the throne of grace with confidence because we can and because it's a nice thing to do. Why not? Take it or leave it. It's approach the throne of grace with confidence because we need it. We need to. We need to receive these two things that are essential for living. We receive mercy and we find grace. We need mercy to free us from our sins and we need grace in this life with all its ups and downs, with our temptations, with our suffering or as this passage puts it, in our time of need. And it's interesting, isn't it? Those two things are actually the things that often prevent us from approaching the throne of grace with confidence. So the sin, that, that makes me want to kind of avoid the throne of grace. And, and um, suffering, so suffering is the next thing that prevents us from coming before God. And actually those are the two things that often prevent people from coming to faith in the first place, the problem of suffering and the problem of sin. So I just want to confront those two things this morning. So firstly, sin. As I said earlier, I feel a bit vulnerable and naked and exposed when approaching God if I've done something wrong. And that is my instinct. It's a bit like, um, you know, a child that's done something naughty. Um, Those of you who are parents will know this, your child's done something naughty and they kind of avoid you for a little bit. Or they don't want to come to you because they're a bit nervous. (laughs) Or more seriously, it's a bit like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, do you remember, back in Genesis? And they'd sinned against God, and suddenly they are aware of their nakedness, and God says, why are you hiding? And Adam replies, I heard you coming, and I didn't want you to see me naked, so I hid. But what the throne of grace promises us, what Jesus offers us, is mercy. And I love the story that Jesus tells us of the prodigal son. Remember the son who um, has squandered his inheritance, has betrayed his father, has basically wished his father dead. And after all that, he, he comes back to the father and he's probably feeling at this point a bit like we feel sometimes. And he's approaching the father's house with the kind of stench of of pig feces and rotten food and the shame of his betrayal. And yet his father runs towards him, embraces him and kisses him. And then he wraps him in his best robe. Isaiah talks about being clothed in garments of salvation and wrapped in robes of righteousness. Because of Jesus, our great high priest, when we approach God, we're not left exposed and naked and vulnerable, but we are clothed in garments of salvation. We are wrapped in robes of righteousness. Therefore, let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy. Or in other words, that we might receive that garment and be wrapped in robes of righteousness and garments of salvation. But what about suffering? Now, if you Google um, kind of people's main barriers to, to faith or believing in God, the main thing that comes up is the problem of suffering. The experience of suffering in our world, like how can it be, if God is good, if God is real, how can all this suffering go on and exist? Does God really care? Dorothy Serle was a German theologian in the 19, born in the 1920s, and she witnessed the horrors of um, World War II in Nazi Germany. 
And she said she could not tolerate the thought that God was in heaven in all its glory whilst Auschwitz was being organised. And so she dedicated her life kind of grappling with this and, um, and trying to um, relate her faith to the experiences of suffering in her own life. And if I'm honest, that is something I still struggle with, that the problem of suffering. And I'm sure many of you kind of grapple with that problem. Now, there are whole books and probably libraries dedicated to the problem of suffering. So this morning, I'm not going to get time to give you a really satisfactory answer, I'm afraid. <laughs> But what I want to do is just use the passage and how the passage responds to this um, question. And what the passage says is that we have a high priest who is able to empathize with our weakness. That's in verse 15, both in terms of um, temptation and in terms of suffering. N.T. Wright says this, this high priest is the one who belongs firmly on our side of the picture and is completely at home and able to rep represent us fully and appropriately on God's side. And then he goes on. When he represents us before the Father, he isn't looking down on us from a great height. He can truly sympathize. He has been here. And it says that at the end of our passage, if you look at Hebrews 5 verse 7, it says, during the last days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petition with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And of course, this is recounting the Garden of Gethsemane, where in the Gospel of Luke, it says that he had such pain and anguish, and he was praying with such kind of heartfelt anguish that he, his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. He was, the Bible says, a man of suffering, one who was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows and familiar with pain. One of my um, favourite books, I'm sure many of you are familiar with this book, it's brilliant, if you haven't read it, read it, it's by Corrie Tempu, and she's written a book called The Hiding Place, she's written many books, but this is one of them, and she describes in this book her experiences of the notorious Ravensbrück concentration camp, I don't know if I pronounced that right, sorry, um, and it's near Berlin, it was near, near Berlin during World War II where she was imprisoned with her sister Betsy. And if you'll allow me, um, I'm going to read uh, a fairly lengthy extract from her book. Um, so I hope that's okay. Barracks 8 was in the quarantine compound. Next to us, perhaps as a deliberate warning to newcomers, were located the punishment barracks. From there, all day long and often into the night, came the sounds of hell itself. They were not the sounds of anger or of any human emotion, but of a cruelty altogether detached. Blows landing in regular rhythm, screams keeping pace. We would stand in our ten deep ranks with our hands trembling at our side, longing to jam them against our ears to make the sound stop. The instant of dismissal, we would mob to the door of Barracks 8, stepping on each other's heels in our eagerness to get inside, to shrink the world back to understandable proportions. It grew harder and harder. Even within these four walls, there was too much misery, too much seemingly pointless suffering. Every day, something else failed to make sense. Something else grew too heavy. Will you carry this too, Lord Jesus? 
But as the rest of the world grew stranger, one thing became increasingly clear. And that was the reason the two of us were here. Why others should suffer, we were not shown. As for us, from morning until lights out, whenever we were not in ranks for roll call, our Bible was the centre of an ever-widening circle of help and hope. Like waves clustered around a blazing fire, we gathered about it, holding out our hearts to the warmth of its light. The blacker the night grew, the brighter and truer and more beautiful burned the word of God. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. I would look about us as Betsy read, watching the light leap from face to face, more than conquerors. It was not a wish, it was a fact. We knew it, we experienced it minute by minute. Poor, hated, hungry. We are more than conquerors. Not we shall be, we are. Life in Ravensbrook took place on two separate levels. Mutually impossible. One, the observable external life grew ever, every day more horrible. The other, the life we lived with God grew daily better. Truth upon truth. Glory upon glory. And I've said this before, but I'll say it again. In this life, we will suffer. The Bible tells us that. Suffering is a reality for everyone on this earth. And there are some theologies out there that will tell you otherwise, but that's not what the Bible says. We will suffer. And in this passage, it says it. We will have times of need. The restoration of the whole of creation, where there will be no more tears and no more pain, is coming, but it's not yet come in all its fullness. But we have Jesus, our great high priest, who knows what it is to suffer, who gives us grace in our time of need. And I've told you this moment in my life before, a couple of times, I think, um, but I've never shared with you the extent to which I was suffering. And that's for two reasons. Sometimes I don't think it's fully appropriate to share everything and to be that vulnerable. But then I've been challenged, and I think the other reason I haven't shared this fully is partly because I'm a bit proud. <laughs> um, but as I said at the 9am, I've been here over a year now, and you know me, and I think you can handle it, okay? <laughs> So this is the bit I've, I've shared before. I hope it's helpful. I hope it gives glory to God. And actually, the reason I'm sharing it is because it's a living um, example of my own experience and how receiving grace in my time of need has not just been an option. It's been kind of life-giving and, and vital for my survival. So this is the story I've shared before, um, that I was suffering with uh, complex post-traumatic stress. I was cycling back from having had some treatment. And you know when you have a thought that's not your thought, and you're like, oh, I think that's God. <laughs> um, that, I had one of those experiences. It wasn't like an audible voice, but just this thought that seemed to be repeating over and over again in my head. And it was from scripture, and it was the words, take up your cross and follow me. And, and Katie was inserted there, so it was take up your cross, Katie, and follow me. With your pain, with your suffering, follow me. So that's the bit I've, uh, the little story that I've shared before. But what I haven't shared is that actually 
As I was cycling back, I just cycled back from a meeting with my psychiatrist and I just confessed to them that I was self-harming to try and externalise some of the in internal pain that I was feeling and that I had a suicide plan. And yet Jesus gave me grace in my time of need. And it was nothing dramatic, you know, it was just scripture. Um, and in some ways, my situation didn't change. I didn't exactly feel much different on the face of it. You know, life didn't dramatically change that day. Everything that had happened through the rest of my life and my past had not gone away. It was exactly the same in some ways. And yet on another level, everything had changed. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Thomas Watson said this, Jesus Christ went more willingly to the cross than we do to the throne of grace. It's nuts. <laughs> all of this is available to us all the time. Not coming to Jesus um, when we feel ashamed or we feel really sinful or when we're suffering is a little bit like being lost at sea and refusing to get in the lifeboat. Or to be a bit more silly, it's like I've paid for your hotel for this beautiful holiday. It's five star and it's full board. You can have all the food that you want. You can have breakfast, lunch and dinner and everything in between, all the snacks, all the coffee, whatever you want. And yet you decide, actually, I'm going to sleep in my car for the next few weeks and I'm just going to live off, off pot noodles. It's nuts. How much more should we approach the throne of grace with confidence? And finally, just to finish, what does it look like then? Like, what does it actually look like to come before Jesus with confidence? And I think it's really simple. I think it's just an everyday decision to position ourselves before Jesus with everything that we have and everything that we are. It's give us today our daily bread for this moment. Um, there's another moment uh, that Corrie Ten Boom writes about. I absolutely love it. And she and her sister Betsy have been, had been moved to a different barracks and it was full of fleas. And she says to her sister, Betsy, how can we live in such a place? And Betsy says, show us, show us. And then Corrie writes, it was said so matter-of-factly, it took me a second to realise she was praying. This is the bit. More and more, the distinction between prayer and the rest of life seemed to be vanishing for Betsy. That's my desire. I'm probably like 1% there. <laughs> but I, that's my longing for me. And it's my longing for us that we would live 100%. You know, not even leaving the throne of grace. You know, constantly living before the presence of Jesus. It's a bit like Brother Lawrence's practicing the presence of God. You know, this, I'll peel my potatoes for the glory of God. <laughs> you know, every moment of every day. That's what I long for. And that's my challenge that I want to leave with you today. Don't cut yourself short. Don't leave here this morning and kind of leave God here. Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need.